brothers and sisters, if you were here last Lord's Day, you realize that our, our uh, purpose is to conclude uh, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus' final public uh, message. He will uh, preach or teach his disciples. We've got two more chapters in Matthew. John gives us three chapters of his ministry privately to his disciples, but this is his last public ministry. And it brings to a kind of a climax this tension which has been building between our Lord Jesus and uh, Israel's religious leaders. The scribes, the Pharisees are in focus particularly here. Of course, with the Sadducees as well, there have been tensions, especially as a result of Jesus cleansing the temple. But uh, we, we noted last week that um, this entire chapter is... Uh, uh, contains dominical denunciation. Dominical refers to Jesus Christ as Lord. Denunciations, public condemnations of people and things, in this case, ideas and false teaching. And it's interesting that Jesus begins by, in a sense, validating, in one sense, the ministry of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They had a position as teachers, which was a legitimate position, an important function. The problem is they were not exercising or fulfilling it properly. And so he says some general things early on. They preach, but they don't practice. Uh, so don't do what they do. Just when they preach what's correct, follow that, but don't imitate them. Uh, they do their deeds to be seen by others. Don't be like them. Pursue true greatness through humility and service. We saw, then he goes on uh, to speak to specific sins. And last week I suggested two general principles out of the whole latter part of the chapter that he validates the ministry of denunciation. There are times when it is not only appropriate but important to denounce certain things, certain people, certain teachings, false teachings. Some people delight too much in denunciation. And they naturally do that, and they have to learn, to, uh, preachers and, and others, to restrain themselves, to exercise humility and grace and so on. Others, I'm more of this kind, are, find it difficult to do that. And we have to be strengthened to be faithful when, when our duty requires us to do that. But anyway, he validates the ministry of denunciation. He excoriates the sin of religious hypocrisy. Uh, acting, preparing to be one thing on the outside or something else on the inside. Then I mentioned very briefly he spoke to three specific sins we looked at last Lord's Day, their sin of shutting others out of the kingdom, their sin of defrauding widows and religious posturing, and their sin of zeal without knowledge, making proselytes who were twice as much, Jesus says, sons of hell as themselves. This morning we're going to look at five more, we'll try to do it quickly, five more specific sins and then conclude with his lament for the fruit of this false teaching and false ministry in the lives of God's people. So with that little bit of review and introduction, uh, please uh, give me your attention uh, as I begin in verse 13 of Matthew 23 and read through the end of the chapter. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgent. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and ordain the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Amen. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It was the prophet Isaiah who originally spoke those words to the people of Judah in the 8th century B.C. 700 years later, our Lord Jesus Christ 
quoted those words and applied them specifically to the scribes and the Pharisees. This in Matthew 15. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And as we saw to some extent last week, and we'll see you again this morning, uh, this is a, a, a brief summary of the problem of these bad shepherds. We saw last week that it is a problem when sheep have no shepherds, but it's a problem when they have bad shepherds. And that's the, the situation to which our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, is speaking here in his last public message. As I mentioned, I uh, want to look uh, Briefly, I think, at five of the remaining sins of which our Lord Jesus points in our text. And the first one is this. The Lord Jesus denounces the sin of eviscerating God's commands by foolish hair splitting. To eviscerate means to take the guts out of something. Eviscerating God's commands by foolish hair splitting. Now, apparently, swearing and oath-taking was a big deal in Israel, a big deal with the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Back in chapter 5 in the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said, You've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you've sworn. I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, by earth, for it's this footstool, by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great God. Don't take an oath by your head. You can't make one hair white or black. Well, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And he's speaking to the fact that they apparently made a big deal out of oath-taking of various kinds. And here in our text, he's speaking to the fact that they sought to eviscerate the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness. In other words, that we are to speak the truth. They eviscerated by inserting little loopholes in various kinds of oaths. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of, or the temple that has made the gold sacred? If you say anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if he swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And so what they would do, apparently, is they would take an oath, at times make promises that sounded very significant, important. I swear on the altar, or I swear by the temple. But then they would have a loophole. What is really important is the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar. I didn't mention that, and so it would allow them a way out from keeping their, um, their oath or their promise. Brothers and sisters, you and I are to be people of our word. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 5. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We should be slow, careful, and wise about making promises. And we should never use our promises, as people sometimes do, to deceive or manipulate people. They give their word with no intention of keeping it. I promise I'll do this. I won't do that. And, and they do that to manipulate and take advantage of people. We never are allowed to do that. When we make a promise, unless it would cause us to sin, we're obliged to keep it. We sang Psalm 15 last Lord's Day. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, among other things, he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. 
It might cost us money. It might cost us time and trouble. But unless it would be sinful, once we've made a promise, we ought to keep it. Now, I don't think it's the case that we can never take oaths and vows. Through history, some have taken our Lord's words to, 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 to indicate that. The Westminster Divines wrote seven paragraphs, a whole chapter of the Westminster Confession, chapter 22 of lawful oaths and vows. There are some that are not lawful. There are some that are. If you're interested, read chapter 22. Essentially, an oath is a, is a promise to man that calls God to witness. And Paul does this frequently in the New Testament, his letters. He said, as God is my witness, I did this or I didn't do certain things. And it is appropriate at times for us to do that as, as an additional affirmation that we're speaking the truth. We, um, Vince, when you're commissioned as an officer, that's an oath, right? Not a vow. I, many years ago, I was privileged to... Uh, take uh, an oath and be commissioned as an officer in the Naval Reserves. Uh, and, and, you know, when you testify in court, you take an oath. That this is true, so help me God. And so that's an oath. A vow is made explicitly to God. Uh, we're gathered here in the face of these witnesses to witness the vows of a man and a woman becoming man and wife. And, and ordination, uh, the people being ordained take vows. They make promises to God. And there are Again, legitimate times when we can do that, and, and that chapter uh, stresses that. But the point is, we're never to do it lightly. We're never to use it as a means of deceiving people. And once we've taken a vow, uh, we are to keep it, unless in some way it would cause us to sin. Brothers and sisters, no official Christian teacher or anyone else is to evade or manipulate God's commands or any other part of his word, and that's what they were doing here. Every Christian teacher, every Christian, but especially there's a special burden on those who are ordained as official teachers of uh, the church and of God's word as, is obliged to understand, to teach it as accurately, and apply it to himself and others as faithfully as possible. That's what Ezra made as his goal. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his ordinances to Israel. And I appreciate, I think Vince in his prayer alluded to our being Bereans. You have that obligation, uh, not just for me, but for every preacher and teacher you hear. Uh, listen carefully with an open mind. That's what the Bereans did, and they were noble mind. They're commended because they listened to Paul's teaching, but then they compared it to Scripture. So Christ condemns their hair splitting uh, distinctions, which in effect were used to eviscerate the command, Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Secondly, Jesus denounces their sin of straining gnats and swallowing camels, or what we might say, majoring on the minors. Straining gnats and tiny little things and swallowing camels, majoring on the minors. Brothers and sisters, all the content of Scripture, every word is equally inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, correction, for training in righteousness. But all scripture is not equally important. The book of Nahum, just one little chapter about the fall of Nineveh, is an important book and we can benefit from it. But it's not as important as the gospel of John or Paul's letter to the Romans. And our Lord himself here in our text in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint 
and dill and cumin. They were obsessed. These are tiny little seeds, and this was not even commanded. They weren't commanded. The Old Testament didn't command that every single thing should be tithed. It was the major crops that they were to bring a tithe from. And yet, he says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Jesus himself says there's some things that are more weighty than others. And not only had they failed to make that distinction, they completely reversed it. And he mentioned specifically justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guys straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. True wisdom and maturity brings a sense of proportion. Again, uh, Vince in his prayer was praying about the process of maturation as we go through life. And as we have life experiences, especially as we know and understand the word of God more, uh, as we grow in wisdom, it should give us a sense of perspective. And um, you think of an experienced doctor, a doctor who really knows his stuff, his experience when a patient comes in and he says, okay, what's going on? The patient may describe several symptoms. It really hurts here or whatever. Uh, but as the doctor listens, as he looks at the test results, he may realize that that's really not that big a deal. There's some other things that are really more significant, and a good doctor will focus first on the most significant things. That's just part of what wisdom does. We are to cultivate faithfulness in everything. Luke 16.10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Faithfulness should be a habit that we cultivate, but we should also seek to avoid majoring on minors and distinguish between the two. Be concerned with the more important matters of true, well, the truth, gospel truth, and of practical Christian living. What is involved in real holiness? And brothers and sisters, this is one more reason that we should be thankful that we live under the New Testament. We have a much fuller revelation than our fathers and mothers who lived under the Old Covenant had. Uh, they had a wonderful and adequate revelation, but we have a much fuller revelation in the New Testament of these issues. The revelation about God, the revelation about the gospel and salvation, including the nature of true holiness and spirituality, a life that honors and pleases God, and we've got a fuller ministry of the Spirit to help us. So we should be thankful and take advantage of these things in order to help us maintain a proper perspective on what is most important over against the minors. So Jesus condemns their majoring on the minors. Thirdly, he denounces their sin of promoting outward or formal versus heart or actual holiness. Promoting outward and formal versus actual and heart holiness. Woe to you. This is verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. They stressed an elaborate code of ritual and ceremonial purity through various cleansing and washing. In Mark 7, 1, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who'd come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And it's not, they weren't concerned about hygiene. There was a very specific kind of ceremonial washing that was prescribed. And Jesus' disciples didn't go through this ritual. And so the scribes and the Pharisees were offended. 
And then Mark adds this footnote, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. It's not something mandated in scripture, but this, the tradition of the elders had accumulated over time and had come to overshadow the teaching of scripture. And Mark goes on to say, when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions, not just a few, many others they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and even dining couches. Now, just as an aside, it's interesting here, the word for wash is the Greek word baptizo or baptize. And um, you might argue that in some of these cases, they, cups and pots could be immersed. It's doubtful they immersed their couches. I think they, they had some kind of sprinkling, but that's another point. And so they made a big deal about all of these outward washings and cleansing of their cups and everything else. And yet Jesus, our Lord, says here, they are full of greed and self-indulged. Not just greedy, but full of it. Utterly lacking in true holiness. Luke 16, 14 says the Pharisees were lovers of money. He talks about the scribes liking to walk around in long robes and getting greetings in the marketplaces, but they devour widows' houses. They were so greedy, uh, so covetous that they would, didn't scruple to uh, take advantage of widows and somehow treat them out of their houses. And notice that Jesus implies here, and he says elsewhere, that true holiness originates in the heart. It's, a, it's ultimately, first and foremost, it's an inner thing that shows itself outwardly. It's not just outward. Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks the good person brings his good treasure out from his heart and the evil out of, the, out of his heart. Even the Old Testament said that, uh, Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not steal nor lie to one another, but you're not hold a grudge, but to love your neighbor as yourself. And the great commandment, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. Even the Old Testament made it clear that real holiness originates in the heart. But they had not grasped that. They thought... It was something that could be done outwardly. Proverbs 4.13, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the affairs of life. It's like a fountain. When you see a fountain overflow and there are all kinds of streams that come from it, the heart is like that. And Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because their approach was purely external. You want to know what kind of tree it is? Show me the fruit. That's the real test, and that's a theme throughout Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. Uh, By their fruits, you shall know them. And he's saying here the Pharisees bear very bad fruit, typically. And brothers and sisters, I think this is a good reminder for us because we all, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance. That's just a reality. We can't see others' hearts. But it goes on to say the Lord looks on the heart. It's a reminder that true holiness begins on the inside. Biblical gospel holiness starts on the inside. And we have to beware of that temptation. It's easy. The, the Pharisees were dumbing holiness down. 
making a list of rules that they could keep, even though sometimes they were nitpicky about it. They had a list of do's and don'ts. Now, don't misunderstand. Holiness does involve do's and don'ts. There are some things that if we're walking uh, with the Lord, if we're uh, obeying his word, we will do certain things. There are other things we won't do. But those are the fruit that originates in the heart. And it shows us how much we need God's grace to be holy. Now, that's part of the glory of the gospel, brothers and sisters. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live godly lives. It's the fruit of the gospel, uh, the Spirit's ministry in us. And so we should rejoice as we see that happening and pray for it. Lord, continue and use the means that God gives us to renew our minds with his word and spirit. So, Again, Jesus here condemns their emphasis on an outward, uh, formal kind of holiness and neglect of the holiness that really originates in a renewed heart. Fourthly, we see our Lord denouncing the sin of stressing appearance over substance and reality. Now, this, I think these two are closely related. The one before and this one are closely related. Uh, the former has to do with their mistake about the real nature and source of holiness. And I think this contrasts the results or effects of their approach with reality. It appears to be beautiful to men when in reality in God's eyes it may not be. Proverbs says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. That's an interesting verse. The wicked can go through all the the motions of worship. They can bring their sacrifice at the right time, the right way, the right kind of animal and so on. But And it may look good to people, but if their heart is not right, if they're not coming in, in, in faith to do that, when the Lord sees it, Proverbs says it's an abomination. And you remember how Jesus in Luke 18 describes the prayers, the contrast the prayers between the Pharisee and his self-righteous prayer, Lord, I thank you that I'm so much better than this poor publican over here. And the publican who prayed in humility, and Jesus said it was he who went down from the temple justified, not the self-righteous Pharisee. Jesus said, do not judge by appearance. John 7, 24, do not judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The implication is righteous judgment is often contrary to appearance. What may appear righteous is not always the case. And so we have to be careful. That's, that's the problem here with these Pharisees stressing the outward, uh, that they looked so good on the outside when in fact they were full, Jesus says, of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly, verse 28, appear righteous to others, but then are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And brothers and sisters, I think what this does is it shows us and challenges us with respect to the wisdom of orienting our lives around knowing, serving, and pleasing God rather than man. And that man includes ourselves. Orienting our lives around knowing, loving, serving, and pleasing the unseen God and not ourselves or other people and living for eternity rather than for time. 
that is the only thing that's going to bring a sure reward. If we orient our lives around this world, the things that we can see, the values that most people have of what's important, rather than pleasing the Lord and the things that are eternal, the things of his kingdom, it's going to prove ultimately to be a waste. The Pharisees were practicing their righteousness to be seen by men. Remember what Jesus said? They have their reward. I hope, I hope you enjoyed that. The people said, wow, what a prayer. Wow, what, that guy uh, sure you know, gave a lot of money when they blew trumpets to, to show that they were giving a large gift. That's it. I hope that was worth something. He says, no, you do it as unto your father, and he will reward you. It's a promise. He doesn't say he may. If you pray, if you give, if you fast as unto your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. How important to you is true holiness of the heart? How God-oriented are you? It's interesting. Again, uh, Vince, I'm alluding to some of the things that you've said in your prayer. You, you mentioned where do, we, where do we run during the week when things go wrong, when you have problems. How, uh, how God-oriented is it natural to you to turn to prayer when you have a problem? When you have a blessing to turn to prayer and say, thank you, Father, I praise you for that. When you hear of someone with a need to pray for them, uh, to confess a sin when you're convicted. Again, I think that's the challenge for us, brothers and sisters, to be consciously cultivating our sense of his presence. Not, not just, you know, what do people see, what do they think. Desiring his pleasure. And it's interesting, I've been struck recently how, you know, the... the, the um, Westminster Confession, the, the wonderful first question, Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Hallelujah for that, all of that. But it's interesting how often the Bible talks about the fact that we can please God too. Both the Old and the New Testament talk about that. In fact, that's one of the things we're called to do. You and I, not that God needs us, but yet he takes pleasure just as a parent in, in the loving obedience and the success of, of, of his children, you and I can not only glorify God, which we ought to do, we can actually please him. And how much, again, I think, is, is this part of our thinking, Lord, help me as I go through the day and as I deal with the things I have to deal with, my responsibilities and duties, my problems and, and all of that, help me uh, to, not just to glorify, but to bring pleasure to you through my faith. Through my love and obedience. And again, one further question. How oriented are you toward the unseen and the eternal over against the temporal? The here and the now. And again, I realize, uh, you know, and especially... If you're a parent with small children, uh, the here and the now is very intense, and, and it really takes work. That's one reason it's a blessing to have a Sabbath day, and it's still a challenge even on the Lord's Day to get some time uh, to refocus. But I think that's a challenge, brothers and sisters. Um, you know, the world is too much with us. I think it was Wordsworth, uh, the poet, I, maybe somebody else who wrote a poem of that effect and uh, with that title, and it is. And even more now with all the media that bring bring things to us, but to, to work at, at keeping our focus, dealing with the things we have to deal with, 
in this world faithfully, wisely, and yet keeping an eternal perspective that can really make all the difference. So, Jesus here, uh, the, the fourth of these five sins, he's, he rebukes them for stressing appearance over substance and reality. They were content to look good to men when inside they were full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. And then fifthly and finally, the fifth and final sin our Savior addresses here, he denounces their sin of decrying their ancestors' sins and then repeating them. The beginning of verse 29. Decrying their ancestors' sins... And then repeating those sins. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we'd lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves, you're sons of those who murdered the prophets. They say, We would never have done that if we'd been alive. And he goes on. Um, to assert that they are not as righteous or as superior to their ancestors as they flatter themselves that they are, but would indeed have shared their ancestors' sins against the prophets and that they will treat the prophets that he will be sending to them in the same sinful and unbelieving way. He says, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, and the book of Acts describes that. Beginning in Acts chapter uh, 4 and 5, Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 7, uh, the people having to flee Jerusalem, and the Lord used that. They left Jerusalem under persecution and took the gospel to a variety of other places. Acts 12, 1, uh, Herod killed the um, apostle James, beheaded the apostle James. And so very early on, what Jesus said here began to be fulfilled. The people that he was going to send to them, the apostles and others, they were going to persecute just as their ancestors had persecuted the former prophets. And not only that, he predicts that they're going to pay a terrible price for their rejection of God and his word as it's represented and delivered by his servants. Uh, verse 33, how you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? And then verse 35 on you is going to come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you all these things will come upon this generation. So they flattered themselves that they were better than their ancestors. He says don't kid yourself. You would have done it if you'd been there and you're going to do it to those that I'm going to send to you and it's going to be a terrible cost. Brothers and sisters, virtue signaling is a recent term, but it's an old phenomenon. The scribes and the Pharisees were expert virtue signalers. And this just goes to illustrate again the reality of the deceitfulness of our hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The Lord can, and by his grace, we can as well. One of the things this shows is the close relationship between God and his people and his servants. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 40, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now he's talking to the apostles about specific, going as specific representatives. I'm giving you my word which the Father has given me. So those who respond in faith to you responding to me and those who respond in unbelief and hostility 
But if it's true in a special way about those who are his ministers, it's also true about every one of his children. What did, what did Jesus say to Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As far as we know, Saul never actually even saw Jesus, much less touched him. But he was persecuting his people. And so our Lord, of whom we're all members, said, you persecute them, you persecute me. And it shows this close relationship. And that in loving our brothers and sisters, loving the, serving the body of Christ, we serve him. And those who hate it and persecute it are opposing him. In fact, that's a good uh, point to say that we ought to pray for the persecuted church. If you don't regularly pray, this is one of the reasons why these are our brothers and sisters. And, and uh, when they're persecuted, we're persecuted. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, as one member suffers, all the members suffer. So pray for them. And then having condemned these five additional sins of Israel's shepherds, Jesus concludes in the last part of our text by lamenting the fruit, the effects of the leader's sins on the people and the nation. That's our final point here. He laments the fruit of these sins in Jerusalem's coming destruction, beginning at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, that's one reason. If you look at the title of the sermon, I, I put an, a second title here in addition to... Um, uh, dominical denunciations, it could be entitled Jesus Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is a literary work or speech expressing a bitter lament, a song of grief, as Jeremiah the prophet, which we read earlier, and or a righteous prophecy of doom. We have both here. Our Lord's prophecy of doom, and then here it's combined with a lament. And this is apparently Jesus' second lament, uh, Luke 17 says on the, uh, the day of the triumphal entry as he came over the Mount of Olives and looked out over Jerusalem uh, on that, that Sunday uh, before his crucifixion, it says when Jesus saw the city, he wept over it and expressed these same kinds of grief. He alludes to Jerusalem's coming destruction by the Roman legions of Titus when he says, your house is left to you desolate. And he attributes it to Israel's, now he's speaking about Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was the, the religious and the political capital of Israel. So it represented, in a very real sense, the whole nation. He attributes it to uh, their rejection of his repeated attempts to call them to himself and to save and bless them. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? What an affectionate picture. I regard you as a mother hen would regard her chicks and desired as I sent uh, various prophets and I'm going to send the apostles and others to, to preach the gospel and as I have come myself speaking as no man ever spoke, working signs, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, casting out demons and yet 
It hadn't happened yet, but it was going to happen in a day or two. They were going to reject him. Uh, there were always there were real believers, but the majority of the leaders of the nation, the majority of people rejected him, and he says that's the result. And he expresses affectionate regret over their hard-heartedness and its coming destructive effects. And yet I'm going to suggest that he also anticipates and predicts that at his future return, he predicts his future return and Israel's future faith and blessing. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The time is going to come when Israel, and I think I mentioned this last Lord's Day, praying for the conversion of the Jews, did I? Was it last Lord's Day? I think their promises, uh, Hosea 3, 5, uh, the sons of Israel will return to the Lord their God and to David their king. They will come trembling to his goodness in the last days. I think this is a hint that our Lord anticipates that when he comes again, there's going to be a significant Jewish contingent ready and willing to greet him, quoting the words of Psalm 118. So, to review and summarize, he denounces the scribes and Pharisees' sins of eviscerating God's commands by foolish hair-splitting, straining gnats and swallowing camels or majoring on the minors, promoting outward formal holiness versus true heart holiness, stressing appearance over substance, and decrying their ancestors' sins and then repeating them. And having done that, he concludes by lamenting the fruits of these sins in Jerusalem's coming destruction. Brothers and sisters, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And brothers and sisters, you and I, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, need and we have a righteousness which far exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. In our justification, our sins are washed away by the atoning blood of Christ. And his sinless life, his perfect life, which is a reflection of a perfect heart, is credited to us. So the Heidelberg Catechism can say, it's, we stand before God as if we had never sinned or been sinners, as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. In our sanctification, the Spirit of God is applying to us the resurrection life of Christ. So from the inside out, we are being transformed from glory to glory by degrees into his lovely image. And the power of sin is being broken. And in our glorification, finally and forever, we'll put away every vestige of sin and weakness. And perfectly reflect his glorious image. May the king and head and chief shepherd of the church. Who provides that glorious righteousness. Continue to give her godly faithful under shepherds. Who by their lives and by their teaching will promote that wonderful gospel righteousness. And may we praise and thank him for such shepherds and profit from their ministries until he returns in glory and we join 
our believing Jewish brothers and sisters to welcome him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.